Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. In today's message, we'll be in Esther chapter 5, where we're going to see two portraits, one of courageous humility and the other of pompous pride. And we're going to ask ourselves, do you and I have the courage to be humble? Remember to like and subscribe and share and comment. We look forward to hearing from you. God bless you. All right, well, having said this, uh, those of you who are online might be wondering who in the world I am. (laughs) Well, I'm Scott Farrell. I'm privileged to be the associate pastor here at Warrington Bible Fellowship, and today I have the great privilege of meditating on God's Word with you. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Today we're continuing our occasional series on the book of Esther. This is a fascinating story about a humble Jewish girl who ends up being the queen of the Persian Empire. Imagine that. Well, we began our series back in February, of course, in chapter 1. And I told you then a story about how I didn't grow up with a strong connection to my extended family. I rarely ever saw even the, the few that I did see. But recently, I had a a wonderful opportunity to meet many of my cousins, all of them ferals. It was a wild experience for me. For the very first time, I I was in a big group of people, and I was related to all of them. It was an amazing experience. And so this gave me a wonderful taste of what it means to be a part of the feral family. Well, that little story of mine is a, is a tiny little window into the sort of awakening that is happening in the story of Esther. The book of Esther is a true story of how God keeps His promises and at the same time how He awakens His people to their true identity as the people of God. Now, the Jews in Persia, they had forgotten that they were Jews, but they had so assimilated into Persian culture uh, that, that it, it might be hard to tell them apart from the rest of the Persians. Persian culture was a very diverse uh, culture, of course, but, uh, but the Jews had kind of gotten a little slack in their faith, to say the least. And even many of them had turned down the opportunity to, to, to return to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the city after generations of Babylonian and Persian Empire. Uh, they felt good right where they are. They were making a good living. They were, they were doing well. well we're just going to stay here. So in chapter 5 today, we're going to see uh, Esther's moment of reawakening to her kinship with God's people. It's a powerful reawakening been building up to this moment ever since chapter uh, when we watched God begin to put everything into place to save his people. When King Ahasuerus uh, banishes the queen from his palace because she disobeyed him. And so her absence makes way for chapter 2 where we catch a glimpse of how God works even in mysterious behind the scenes kinds of ways. And all to bring about his will as he raises up a simple but extremely beautiful Jewish girl to be the next queen. In chapter 3, we saw Haman, the king's right-hand man. We saw him concoct a hateful and supremely evil Hitler-esque plan to literally annihilate all of the Jews of Persia. And so we're on the edge of our seats in chapter 4, and we learn that God has placed Esther where she is for such a time as this. God has made her queen, not King Ahasuerus. 
And God has placed her in her role not to enjoy the lavish lifestyle of the palace, but he's placed her there to wake up and be counted as a Jew, ready to embrace the fate of her people even unto death, even though she is the queen. And so today in chapter 5, we see Esther step forward for the sake of her own people and at the risk of her own life to prevent Haman's plot from being fulfilled She's got to go to the king right now. There's no waiting here. This has to be done now. And to do that, she has to go uninvited and unannounced into the king. Because you see, in the court, the way uh, royalty worked in, in Persia anyway, is that you had to be invited into the king's presence. You couldn't just walk in on him and say, hey, do you got a second? So, as Esther walks in to see the king, if he does not look upon her with favor when he sees her in the court, he will order her to be immediately executed. No trial, no waiting period or anything like that. It would be instantaneous death. Only those whom whom the king invites into his court are welcome. Those who do so uninvited and without his favor face a very quick and prompt death. And that goes for even the king's wife. That sounds like a great marriage, doesn't it? So to take this incredible risk, Esther has got to have both courage and humility, or better yet, Courageous humility, which is what uh, I have titled today's message. Courageous humility. At the end of chapter 4, as Esther asks Mordecai and her fellow Jews to fast for her, this is her first step in solidarity with her own people. As she contemplates how in the world she's going to approach the king on their behalf, and as she considers what very well may be grave consequences for her, if not for all of her people. She's taking a step both of courage and humility as she's about to risk her life. She's also recognizing that there's something a whole lot bigger than her own life that God is calling her to. And this is a lesson that we all need to bear in mind with our own lives. The lives of her fellow Jews are more important than her own. The lives of her fellow Jews are more important than her own. Let that sink in as you look around this room and look at your brothers and sisters. She is becoming a living example of who Paul later exhorts us to be in Philippians 2.3. This is the passage that Mark read for us a few minutes ago. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So in chapter 5, it's time for Esther to act in courageous humility. And lest we be passive listeners of, of an interesting and compelling story, there's a question that every single one of us has got to ask ourselves and answer. And that is, do you have the courage to be humble? Do you have the courage to be humble? 
That's a penetrating question in this day and time that seems to reward arrogance and pride and hatefulness and vile speech and vilifying one another and all of those other things. And yes, even Christians do that. So we'll meditate on our own answers to that question as we consider two portraits. You might be familiar with some of the famous works by master painters like Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring. Some of you immediately know exactly what I'm talking about. And then there's Whistler's Mother by James Abbott McNeil Whistler, the man with many names. So today we stand before two portraits in chapter 5, not of faces, not of faces, but of Esther's and Haman's hearts. So in verses 1 through 8, we stand before Esther's portrait, which is named Courageous Humility. Verses 9 through 14, we stand before the very frightening portrait of Haman, the king's right-hand man, and it's called Pompous Pride. Pompous Pride. Now, for the sake of time, I mean, I would love to read the whole chapter for us, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. But I do want to read the very first verse aloud, because I think this is, this is one of the most amazing moments in the whole story of Esther. This is the moment of her courageous humility. And just listen to this. Esther, chapter 5, verse 1, the word of the Lord. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. The word of the Lord. That's an amazing statement, brothers and sisters, and we're, we're about to consider why here as we take a look first at courageous humility. This beautiful portrait of Esther's heart. And so I want you to put yourself in Esther's shoes as she's standing there, as she steps into view of the king. Put yourself in her shoes. What was this moment like for her? And not only that, the moments that were leading up to this decision to act. She is the queen. She is the most favored woman in the land. This is as high as any woman could ever hope to go in ancient Persia. Up until Haman's plot to kill the Jews, her security is absolutely guaranteed. She has at her disposal all of the king's resources. Just read chapter 1 again uh, to remind yourself of just how rich and opulent and, and powerful King Ahasuerus is. She has a cohort of women who attend to her every need. She always has enough to eat. She doesn't even have to fix her own meals. Every thought of her comfort is taken care of for her. Esther is set for life. She lives a comfortable life to the extreme. She remembers living out in the streets of Susa. She knows what that's like. So she knows how hard life can be for everybody else. But Esther has won the lottery. She... She's the one in a million. She's the woman who gets to enjoy all of this for the rest of her life. But she's realizing now that she may have to give all of that up. This is the decision that's before her. You can almost hear 
Esther's thoughts as she hears the news in chapter 4 of Haman's evil plan. You can hear the fear and the reluctance in her voice as she objects to Mordecai's urging her to go to the king uninvited in this desperate attempt to prevent Haman from fulfilling his terrible plan. In chapter 4, verse 11, she, this is, these are Esther's words. She's responding to Mordecai urging her to go into the king. She says, you can almost put a but on the end of this, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, Mordecai. All of the king's ser- servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. She's very keenly aware of the consequences that could happen if she does what she's about to do. The only one who is accepted, she says, is the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. In other words, if I go into the king, I'm going uninvited, and I'm a dead woman if he doesn't like it. And so while Esther and Mordecai and the, and the other Jews of Susa fast for three days, what she has to wrestle with is her own attachment to her comfort, her status, her wealth, her position. Now, yes, of course, Mordecai points out in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4 that she'll likely be found out as a Jew and be killed anyway if she does nothing. But the thought is surely crossing her mind, well, just, just maybe, maybe there's a way that I can keep hiding and protect myself and I can survive all of this. But then she has to come to terms with a powerful question that Mordecai asks her. In in chapter 4, verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther's thinking, oh, you're talking about my duty to my fellow Jews and my duty to God. My loving duty. My responsibility as a member of God's chosen people. And so as she sits there surrounded by gold and silver and dressed in these opulent, expensive clothes with all the food she could ever ask for, she's realizing that there's a greater purpose to her life than all of this comfort, all of this wealth. But to fulfill that purpose, she's got to take a grave risk. Now, of course, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but here's one of those places where it seems like that God could not but be very much on her mind and heart, as well on the hearts and minds of Mordecai and the other Jews, because you see their whole history is bound up in their relationship with God. And so now as these Jews are being threatened with annihilation, just as their forefathers were so many times, they're surely asking the very Jewish question, of whether God is going to keep His promises to them this time. Will God be faithful as we just sang about, even though we've not been? You see, almost 300 years before, God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and He promised the Jews 
that even though He would bring judgment against them because of their sin, in His sovereign power and care, He would also bring them out of exile from the Persians. This has already happened to a limited extent with some, a few of the Jews returning uh, to Jerusalem when they were allowed to, but, but those who stayed behind in Susa and the rest of Persia for another generation or two, as they learn of Haman's plot, they're undoubtedly wondering whether God is still going to keep His promise. So these are most likely the kinds of things that are running through Esther's mind as she considers the possibility that God may have indeed placed her in her position in royal clothes and status for such a time as this. In a similar way, perhaps even to Moses and Noah and King David and others who served the Lord in crucial moments on behalf of God's people. And so for Esther, this moment is not just one of her considering her own safety or even the welfare of her fellow Jews. No, this is a crossroads of faith for her. Do I want to try and hold on to what I have, to my position and to my material things, my status? Or am I willing to do whatever God requires of me, including sacrificing my life for Him? Do I love me more than I love God and His people? You know, as followers of Christ, we have got to submit ourselves to the truth that God takes the first commandment extremely seriously, and so should we. You shall have no other gods before me. To worship God and God alone, it means far more than singing some songs like we just did and listening to a sermon once a week. It means that we consecrate everything in our lives to Him. Everything. So much so that we are not satisfied with anything that isn't of God. That's who God calls us to be. Here's how our Lord put it in John 4.34. Jesus said to His disciples, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Is that the way you think of God's will? Does it nourish you? Is that what sustains you? Or are you looking to something else? You see, to live this truth ourselves means that we've got to take inventory of the cost of our faith in the same way that Esther had to be thinking this through as she fasted before going in to see her husband. Because you see, the fact is that there is a cost. There is a great cost to following our God. But giving up our lives doesn't only mean that we pay the ultimate price in the sense that we literally die for the gospel. We die to ourselves, certainly. But this kind of devotion to God means that we also embrace His will as our own by laying aside our dreams, our comforts, our status, our wealth, and yes, even when He calls us to, even our lives. Now, most likely for most of us in this room, our faith in Christ might mean uh, something a little less than literally dying for the gospel, but it might mean you don't get the promotion that you've always been hoping for because you're an outspoken Christian. Or it might mean that you have to change careers so that you have more time for your wife and your children or for God. It might mean... Uh, 
that we are vilified in our culture as we see happening more and more and more and more. It might mean that we lose our reputation, that we're seen as evil people, that we're seen as hateful people, and people who are against everybody. But the point is, is that we're all called to live for Christ even as the world hates Christ, aren't we? Christ calls us to take up our own cross and to suffer for His sake and and to give Him our lives, not in part, but in the whole. And the reason we do that is that He bought us with the greatest price ever paid. Is that how you and I approach our lives? Do Do we really understand that our lives belong to Christ and not us? Do we bow in humility before Him? Do we count His will above our own, even in place of our own? Do we count others as more significant than ourselves so that we might courageously do His will? You know, we Americans don't like the idea of giving things up, do we? We're all about gaining more and more and more. We covet our rights. We covet our American dream. We covet our comfort and so on. Those things in themselves by any means are not evil except when we covet them instead of God. Instead of wanting more and more and more and more of this world, we should be wanting more and more and more of Christ. More and more of God. You see, we're not here for the things of the world, are we? We are here because God has placed us here for such a time as this. In the chaotic world that we live in right now, the divided world, the ungodly world, the mixed up world. That fact alone should change all of our priorities. Now, of course, Esther doesn't know Christ in chapter 5. We know this because these events are happening 450 plus years before Mary and Joseph huddled in the little town of Bethlehem, right? But Esther is realizing that to be counted among God's people means that you sometimes have to give up even a great deal. And so Esther steps into the king's inner court in verse 1. Imagine what was going through her mind and heart. She is within sight of His throne, and she doesn't know whether she's going to live or die. Now, thankfully, we have verse 2, which tells us that at least for now, she has found favor in the eyes of her husband. He's held out that golden scepter, and he's not going to kill her after all. So what does she do? Because after all, the Jewish people are being oppressed here, and they... This needs to be changed. So she, she storms into his court and calls him names and yells at him and tells him he's so ignorant to sign this edict that's going to destroy the Jews. And she demands her rights. She demands that all the rights be restored. She vilifies Haman and, and makes Facebook posts and tells everybody how evil he is. But wait a minute. That's not what she does, is it? That's... That's kind of what we do today, right? 
Our political and spiritual opponents are stupid. We call them Satan incarnate. I've heard Christians say all of these things. We are righteous and they are not. So we shout them down. We demand our way. We love to to read about how evil and clueless they are. And so we use what we've read to degrade our fellow image bearers of God however we can. Because they're evil. Brothers and sisters, I think we can learn a lot from this Jewish girl from Susa. She is placed here in these incredibly trying circumstances so long ago, but she doesn't go in demanding her way, does she? No. She works within the system. Flawed and evil though it was, and she carries herself with dignity and humility, and she even treats the one who has the right to kill her with dignity and respect. And so after King Ahasuerus has offered her that golden scepter to touch, a sign of his favor, he asks her what she wants and even offers her up to half of his kingdom if she desires it. But you see, Esther isn't isn't after wealth and status. She already has that. However flawed she might be and however much she and Mordecai may have assimilated into the Persian culture, almost like a frog in the proverbially uh, slowly boiling water, Esther has changed. She's realized who she is. And so now she approaches the king not as the beautiful, seductive woman who is there to satisfy his desires, but she approaches the king as an ambassador to her God. And her God in His wisdom is even using her beauty to carry out His will, to save His people from destruction. And so she begins her answer to the king with these polite, dignified, and humble words. If it please the king. If it please the king. Even though the king has through Haman, or Haman through the king, uh, better yet, has ordered the annihilation of her people, she doesn't disrespect him. She shows him the deference his office requires, and she remains humble. And so next she offers him something that he, she already knows that he loves, a banquet. We saw all this in chapter 1, in those banquets back then. You know, they do say that the way to a man's heart is his stomach, and I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. And so that's what, what, uh, what Esther is doing. And for a man like King Ahasuerus, who is vulnerable to the guile of a pretty face, how in the world could he say, say no to this banquet? How in the world could he do that? But you see, honor, uh, Esther is honoring him and even honoring Haman with this banquet. And so she prepares for them this fine meal to enjoy. And at the banquet, King Ahasuerus asks again what she wants, even up to half of his kingdom. And again, Esther replies in the same way she did before, because she's not looking for all of that. And hear these humble words again. If I have found favor, in verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. 
Though she does have a clear agenda to save God's people from destruction, the courageous humility we see in Esther isn't a false humility. When she made her uninvited presence known to the king in verse 1, she had already bowed to her maker, hadn't she? Bowed in humility to him and to his will. And she had courageously offered up her life, if necessary, to be a part of fulfilling God's will. And God's will in this instance is for her to count uh, the lives, uh, is for her to, to count the lives of the Jewish people more important than her own. Because she's bowed to be to, to, to bowed low to be used by God, in turn, she treats Haman and her husband respectfully, even though they don't deserve it, especially at this point. Her humility seems rooted in the fact that, as Daniel 2.21 says it, that it's God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Later on, Paul will elaborate on this in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by the people. No, that's not right. By the government? No, that's not right. By God. That's it. All of these powers and authority exist because they have been instituted by God. But how do you subject yourself to an evil empire? This is the dilemma that Corrie ten Boom and her family faced during World War II as they successfully hid many Jews from the Nazis. So if you, if you read about their story, you realize how difficult of a question this is. But at the heart of Esther's answer to that question is to be humble before God. And I think that's what Corrie and her family got right. It's to be ready to do His will. And be ready even to face perhaps the deadly consequences of obeying God. But do so without malice, but with the love and grace that she should have toward her enemies. You see, the consequence for Corey and her family was concentration camps because they were found out eventually. And all of Corey's family except for her died in those camps. But even then, Corey had the humility to forgive them. And one of them, in a very gripping story, uh, was a, a former Nazi guard who, years after the war, came to one of her talks where she was talking about forgiveness. And she realized how difficult that was for her. But she did. She did. Talk about humbling yourself to the will of God. If you've ever read the uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I highly recommend, it's an accounting of every known Christian martyr since the apostles up until recent history. And if you read that, you realize that even as these saints rightly did not allow the laws of men to silence their faith, at the same time, they willingly subjected them themselves to the laws of the land, to the rulers over them, and were ultimately burned at the stake, had their heads chopped off in all kinds of horrible ways to die. This is exactly what Paul did in bringing Christ to the, uh, Caesar's palace in Rome, and he had his head chopped off for doing so. 
So likewise with Esther. It took an incredible amount of courage for her to place herself in danger and to potentially sacrifice her life of comfort and ease at the very least. But it also took great humility as she literally offered up her whole life for God to use as He saw fit. Not in the way that he, she wanted her life to be used. That's the portrait of courageous humility in chapter 5. And so next, we turn to pompous pride. We see this very horrible, terrible, awful portrait of pride in the remaining verses. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because it's pretty clear. In this portrait, we see Haman, who is second only to the king. And, and, and in verse 9, we read how he is joyful about his plan to kill all of the Jews and how it all seems to be coming together. Yippee! I get to kill all the Jews. Imagine that. And yet at the same time, he passes Mordecai, who is like a really bad case of heartburn to him. And so Mordecai is a Benjaminite by heritage. And he refuses to bow to Haman, who is a descendant of Amalekite, the Amalekite king, Agak. Now, King Saul, back in 1 Samuel, whom uh, Mordecai is related to, defeated King Agag, but he didn't carry out God's orders to annihilate them. Saul disobeyed God. And so, needless to say, ever since then, there's been a long history of bad blood between uh, the Jews and the Amalekites. Mordecai is refusing to bow to Haman because of that history. And likewise, Haman sees his opportunity to turn the tables on the Jews and to annihilate all of them with his new edict. And that's why Mordecai in particular is, is really getting under Haman's skin today. He's kind of putting a damper on his joy about being able to kill everybody. And so he goes home from Esther's banquet and he passes Mordecai and he knows exactly why Mordecai won't bow to him. But you see, in Haman's mind, Mordecai should bow to him, of course, because as Haman recounts to his family and friends when he gets home, well, he, Haman realizes, well, man, I'm a really, really, really great guy. I'm really something else. I mean, listen to this. I mean, I'm really great. And so beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5, and Haman recounted to them, to his family and his wife and friends, he recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, even Queen Esther, let, me, uh, uh, let no one but me come to the feast with the king that she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yeah, but then there's this Mordecai guy. Yet all of this in verse 13 is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And so Haman is like the newly promoted boss who decides to use his power that is now in his hands to make life miserable for all of his former peers. Now they are his underlings, and now he wants them to feel the pain. We've all heard of vindictive bosses like that who work out uh, creative ways for people they don't like to be fired. 
That happened to a close friend and colleague of mine after I left the world of journalism to answer the call to be a pastor. There was, there was some bad blood between the two of, of them, this boss and, and him, uh, partly because of personality and partly because of just honest disagreements about things. And this boss found a way to get rid of my friend, regardless of the fact that my friend is a phenomenally skilled journalist. He didn't care about that. He just, my, the boss, he just wanted to get rid of him. But of course, Haman carries his feud to a terrible level. Now that he's a big shot in town, Haman decides to recreate the world as he wants it. And he does, the first step in that is to kill all the Jews on that official day of destruction later on this year in the month of Adar. But also, he wants to take care of Mordecai in a special way. This will almost be like the cherry on top to be able to do this. Because you see, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and his friends, they urge him to make a special plan for Mordecai. They say, in effect, here's a fun idea. Here's a fun idea. Now that you're the big man on campus, how about you make a ridiculously tall gallows and have Mordecai hung on it? That's a splendid idea. Now, let me explain the gallows. Sometimes people were hung on the gallows the way we would ex expect, by a rope and, and by the neck. But there's also a possibility that Haman intends Mordecai to be speared first, then cut into pieces, and his, and his torso skewered to the gallows for everyone to see, all up high for everyone to marvel at what a terrible, awful person Mordecai was. You see, the idea here is to shame Mordecai by not only treating his life with the utmost of disrespect, but also his body. His very memory needs to be sullied by this image. And so his wife and his friends tell Haman, after you've done this, in verse 14, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Yippee, Mordecai's dead. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Do you see what pride does? It causes you to completely disregard other people. When we think of ourselves as more significant than others, the opposite of what Paul preaches, the first thing we do is we replace even God with ourselves. We begin to see other people as the means to advance our own agenda. We start to look down our noses at people who are different from us or who are what we deem as lower in status at work or, or, or in our society. We, we look down our noses at people who look different from us or have a different culture. We stop looking at other people as people who are made in the image of God by God. And we end up exalting ourselves as being the righteous one. We stop caring about the destruction we cause in people's lives because we care so much about ourselves. And we can even become haughty as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters. We touched on that a couple minutes ago. We can become haughty whenever we explain the hope that we have in us, but without the gentleness and respect for every human being that God demands they deserve as His image bearers. The point of this portrait of pompous pride is very clear. Pride is ugly. Pride is destructive. Pride is the opposite of godliness. 
And so let's tie our loose ends together now as we contemplate that question we ask in the beginning. Do you have the courage to be humble? We've taken a brief look at two very vivid portraits. Which one best describes you? The first portrait is courageous humility, where we see in Esther not only a reawakening of her awareness that she is a Jew, but that along with that, God has indeed placed her in her situation in the palace for such a time as this, and even to take great risks to do God's will. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but you're realizing through Esther's example that this is your time. This is your time. That you're hearing God calling you to a deeper walk with Him, to value Him more than anything else in your life, and and so that your life ought to, to truly belong to Him. And that it's time to do even really, really challenging things for your God. Maybe God is calling you to courageous humility. In fact, I know that He is because He's calling every one of us to that. The second portrait is pompous pride, this hideous painting. Maybe God is convicting you right now that you see more of yourself in Haman's portrait than you care to admit. As you see how pride causes Haman to make a god of himself and to destroy others for the sake of his own status and his wealth and his position. Either way, the question remains in the context of this evil world in which Esther lived and in which we live. Let's ask our question again. Do you have the courage to be humble? Are you and I willing to give our whole lives to God? To give Him our finances, our comfort, our will, our dreams? Are we willing to humble ourselves before God by taking the risk to stand up and be counted as a follower of Jesus Christ in a very dangerous world that hates Him? Because after all, somebody else did that for our sake, didn't He? Our Lord did exactly that. He didn't stand before a worldly king but He stood before our holy and righteous God, our Father Almighty. And instead of showing favor to His perfect Son, God the Father crushed His Son. And in doing so, He counted all of our sin to the account of His Son. He became sin for us so that we could be in right relationship with God the Father Almighty. And because Christ showed us what true humility is, His example of humility becomes our loving duty to Him. Paul explains it like this in another passage, in actually the following passage in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Let me say that again. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. The Lord of all creation became a man. Think of that. 
Meditate on that truth. That's how humble our Lord is. And in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, you and I can in no way, shape, or form save humanity by dying on a cross, but we can be vessels of God's grace and His truth when we take the form of His humble servants in order to share the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to one another and to a lost and broken world. This is what we're called to do in laying down our lives just as Esther did and even more as Christ has done for us. And so may we as God's people be known not for our pride, but for our courageous humility in the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God, we bow before you this morning. We bow before you because you are God Almighty, the one and only. We bow before you because you are the one who sent your Son and crushed him on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice that you and our Lord made for us and for giving us now the Holy Spirit by which we can be enabled and empowered to live in humility and even courageous humility in a world that is so dangerous. But Father, we are safe in you. We are safe in you forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen.